Holy Father, I, I thank you that we can be here together today to worship the risen Christ. I thank you that when Jesus put death to death on that cross, that because of what he has done for us, we can have new life through the power of his resurrection. Father, I know there are people here today that have come with burdens that need to be lifted and problems that need to be solved and guilt that needs to be taken away. There are people here who are searching for purpose and meaning in their lives. And there are people here that do not know you in a personal way. So Heavenly Father, I ask that you would speak to us from your word today and I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will draw to yourself all those whose hearts you've prepared for this time. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Happy Easter to you, those of you that are here with me in Auditorium 1, those across the hall in Auditorium 2, and those that are joining us online. Happy Easter. Let's do the tradi traditional Easter greeting. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Take your Bible, paper, or digital and find your way to John chapter 20. And we'll get there in a few minutes. I tell you, I, I love Easter because today we are celebrating the most important event in human history. Now, you might push back a little bit and say, well, what about Christmas? That's an important day. And yes, Christmas is great, but Christmas is about Jesus being born, and I did that, right? I mean, didn't you? I mean, we were all born. So far, I've never met anyone who rose from the dead. And if, if you have, I mean, please come up and tell me about it after the service. I'd really like to meet you. But today is the best day of the year because we're not just celebrating the birth of someone. That happens to everybody who's ever walked the earth. But we're celebrating an amazing, amazing event that is the foundation and the centerpiece of everything that we say that we believe as followers of Jesus. Now, if you are new to the faith or you're trying to figure it out or you're really skeptical or you're here because they said you're going to church with us this morning on Easter. This is Easter. We're not missing church for you. And so you came, but you're skeptical. Listen, I understand. I understand your skepticism. I mean, we're talking about somebody rising from the dead, and that's something that none of us have ever seen before, and it's probably one of the most difficult things for anyone to get their mind around and, and to come to believe. But here's what I want you to know about those of us who are Christians. You see, unlike any other religion, Christianity is not built on the teachings of a religious person. Christianity is not built on the teaching of Jesus uh, uh, and, th and this may be um, new news for you, but Christianity, the thing that holds Christianity together is not the teaching of Jesus, but it's this event. It's the resurrection. And if you pull the resurrection out of Christianity, there would be nothing left. We might as well shut down, sell the buildings, and go to the lake next weekend. The whole thing rises and fa or falls, not on Jesus' teaching, not on a Christian philosophy of life, not on a Christian morality, uh, not on a view of heaven or hell or eternal life. The whole thing rises or falls on something that happened on a single day in history, and that is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Easter is the big event. Now, how many of you grew up with kids who 
Uh, how many of you grew up as kids and you loved playing with Legos when you're growing up? Let me see your hands. Okay, how many of you have kids that love playing with Legos? Okay, all right. So I'll be honest, I got grandkids who love Legos and I, I like building Lego houses from scratch or trying to come up with something creative to build on my own, but honestly, I hate Lego kits. And you have to, you know, I mean, and, and where they ask you, they want you to build that, for goodness sake. I mean, can you, you know how many pieces there are in that? Or, or uh, a Millennium Falcon or like T-Rex. Uh, I mean, it's just like you have to follow pages and pages and pages of directions. And you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces, some the size of a BB. Like, why do, aren't these things choking hazards? I don't understand this. And you have to dig through all of those parts and find the right parts. And then you snap things together. And about the time you get pretty much all of it snapped, it all breaks apart. And I'm like, ah. Uh, Karen and I went to uh, Florida last week to visit uh, my daughter Callie and, and Zach and their, and their kids. And, and Karen, without my permission, uh, bought a T-Rex Lego kit and she gave it to my son Hampton. And what do you think the first thing he said was when he got the kit? Granddaddy, can you help me build it? And, and I'm like, my head starts spinning and my stomach gets nauseous. I mean, it's kind of like how I feel when Karen asked me to go to Walmart with her. <laughs> but this time, Callie stepped in and she said, I can help you. And I'm like, great, I got my pocket knife here, I'll open the box. And I'm telling you, Callie is great. I mean, she can put together uh, the Millennium Falcon or the T-Rex, you know, like in 15 minutes while I'm overtaking Pepto-Bismol. And uh, so that's Callie in Hampton and there. And, uh, and, and so she put it together, but then, of course, it breaks. Like the thing breaks apart, and then he brings it to me to put back together. And I'm trying to look at the directions to put it back together. And I say, I think this is a job for your mom. And I'm like, hey, when I built models when I was a kid, we glued them together. Why do we not glue this together? You know, but nobody thinks that's a good idea. But anyway, I'd just rather go freestyle and build a big tower, yes, that the kids will just knock down. But if you're gonna build a tower out of Legos that's gonna be really, really tall, the most important thing is, is, that, is to get that big green bottom piece in place and build a foundation that will hold the tower up. Well, the foundational fact, the foundational event of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus and everything, all the teaching of Jesus, it's built on that foundation because, because listen, if Christ died on the cross and he stayed dead, our faith is useless. It means nothing. Now, Johnny read that to us in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what Paul said. This comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 4. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The apostle Peter agrees. He says, God in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says there's no new birth, there's no living hope without the resurrection and you coming to know the risen Christ by faith. So you see, it's not enough to just believe in the teaching of Jesus. It's not enough just to believe that he was a great teacher or a great prophet or a holy man. And, and, and so if you say, well, sure, I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in all the miracles he was supposed to have worked, and I certainly don't believe he rose from the dead. I mean, if that's you, then according to the Bible, that kind of faith doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't work for you. It doesn't serve any purpose. 
So again, if you're not a Christian, I understand your skepticism about Jesus rising from the dead, especially since none of his disciples, none of his closest followers believed it either, at least initially. Let me show you. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Now, just push pause right there. Let me just say this. At the very beginning, I want you to see that the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away to let us in. And we're going to see this in a later message. Jesus' uh, resurrected body, his glorified body, which was a physical body with supernatural properties, his resurrection body could walk through walls. It could appear and disappear. So he didn't need angels to come roll away the stone while he's waiting. Come on, come on, come on, come on. He's not waiting to get out. No, it didn't happen that way. No, the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away to let Peter and John and Mary and us in to see that Jesus wasn't there. Verse 2. So Mary ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him. And went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, by the way, if this is your first time with us, let me just say we're so excited. We're so uh, uh, grateful that you would choose to come and worship with us on this Easter morning. And we want you to know that if you attend here on a regular basis, most of the time you're going to find that we are, are preaching and teaching our way through whole books of the Bible. And for over a year now, we've been uh, studying through the Gospel of John. And we planned it out so that this Easter... We would be right here in John 20 for the resurrection story. Now, one of the most amazing things about this passage is that we see how these three people, Mary, John, and Peter, women and men who were the closest disciples of Jesus, we see how they didn't believe in the resurrection even though Jesus had said it many, many times. They heard him say things like, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified and rise on the third day. And he said it so often that his enemies knew about it because they posted guards outside the sealed tomb so the disciples wouldn't come and steal the body to make it look like his prediction came true. But Jesus' followers, his enemies believed it, but his his followers didn't. Or at least they didn't understand what he meant by it. But one thing is for sure... This is the third day after his death. And there was no crowd of faithful disciples standing outside the tomb just before dawn, waiting for the sun to come up, the Easter sunrise service, here it comes, and there's no faithful disciples there counting down the minutes 
10, 9, he's coming. 8, 7, 6, he's coming. I know it. No, no, nobody was there. So Mary didn't come to the tomb on the first Easter morning because she believed Jesus would rise from the dead. I mean, if there was just 1% of belief in her brain that Jesus might rise from the dead, when she saw the stone rolled away, wouldn't she have thought, wait a minute, could it be? Could he have really risen from the dead? I mean, if there was just 1% belief, would she run away saying, he's gone, he's gone, somebody stole the body, we don't know where they took him. No, no, no. She had no expectation that Jesus would rise from the dead. She simply came to the tomb to grieve, just like you and I go to the gravesite of someone that we love who's passed away. She came to the tomb to grieve. Now, here's what I want you to see. John writes his account of the resurrection in a way that highlights how Mary and Peter and John and later Thomas and the rest of the disciples, he, he, he writes in such a way to show us how they came to faith in the risen Christ. For John, his resurrection story focuses on faith, real faith, God-connecting faith. And there's a sense in which this passage really is kind of a summary of everything John has been saying about Jesus and what faith in Jesus looks like from the very beginning of the gospel. If you go to the end of this chapter, chapter 20, you'll see that John tells us why he wrote this book. He tells us what his purpose in writing was. He says in verse 31, I've written these things so you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. That means that all the stories that John includes in his biography of Jesus, and he tells us at the end of this chapter too that, that he's, he's personally selected certain stories because there's no way to tell all the stories. They could fill uh, 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 hundreds of books. He tells us that. But he write, he, the stories he includes and the way that he writes these stories, they're all written for one single purpose, and that is to bring you and me to faith in Christ and to grow our faith in Christ. Because you see, faith is the great connector. I mean, when you flick on a light switch, the, the, the light comes on, not because the light switch has great power, but because the switch connects the light bulb to the source of power. And faith is like that. You don't have to have a lot of faith, you just have to have it. And faith is taking hold of the risen Christ so that his resurrection power comes into your life and changes your life. But what exactly is this faith that John talks about? What does it mean to believe in Jesus in a way that changes your life the way it changed his first followers? And that's what I want to mine out of this amazing story about Jesus' resurrection. So let's dig in. Now, first of all, I'm going to go back to what I just said, unpack it a little bit more and take it further. First of all, I want you to see how these people who believed in Jesus didn't really believe Jesus. Because we see there in the first two verses, again, that notice that Mary did not run to find Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, which by the way, that's how John, the author of this gospel, spoke of himself. John spoke of himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we have a pastor here, Pastor Mike Hawkins, and that is the way that he refers to himself. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I'm always telling Mike, but he loves all of us, Mike. He loves us all the same. And frankly, I'm getting tired of it. So, but anyway, 
Um, and, he's, and after this message, he's been out in the commons just telling everybody that, that, that today. But, but, um, but, 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 but notice Mary runs to Peter and John, and she doesn't shout with excitement, he is risen, he's risen indeed. No, she says they've taken the Lord's body, and they, somebody's come and stolen it, and we don't know where they took it. They, who's they? Well, it could have been the Romans, could have been the, the religious leaders, could have been grave robbers. She's not, she doesn't know, but they, somebody took it. But whoever they is doesn't matter as much as the fact that she didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead like he said he would. My point is, Mary believed in Jesus, but she did not come to the tomb that first Easter morning believing that Jesus rose from the dead. And neither, neither did Peter or John or neither did the rest of the disciples who didn't even bother to get up and go check it out like Peter and John. Now the question is why? Why didn't any of Jesus' closest followers believe that Jesus would rise from the dead even though he said to them over and over again, I'm going to die and rise from the dead? Well, it's really simple. It's because that, that idea of a Messiah didn't fit with what they thought the Messiah would be, should be. What I'm saying is, is Mary and John and Peter, they loved Jesus and they believed in Jesus, but not the real Jesus. They wanted a Messiah who would do for them what they wanted him to do. Now, I'm not saying that in a shame on you kind of way, uh, because the Messiah that they were looking for, the Messiah that they were taught about from their childhood on up was supposed to be a victorious king who would crush their enemies and make Israel great again. He would crush their Roman oppressors, not be crushed by the Romans. They did not have a category for a Messiah who had to die and rise from the dead. So when Jesus died on the cross, for them it was over. Their faith had been in vain. It was useless. It didn't mean anything. They believed in Jesus. They didn't believe in the real Jesus. They didn't take him at his word. They didn't believe in the Jesus who had to die and rise again to connect people to God. Now, the same thing is true today. There are a lot of people today who claim to be seeking God, who would think of themselves as spiritual people, as spiritual seekers. And there is a sense in which uh, we're all spiritual seekers of one kind or another because we've all got this spiritual vacuum inside. God's put that in us. And, and so we're all spiritual seekers to some extent. You say, but how, wait, 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 how can that be? Like Paul said in Romans 3.11 that no one seeks after God, not a single one. So if the Bible says no one seeks after God, then how, how can I say that everyone is seeking after God? Well, I say it because what Paul is saying is this. He's saying that no one seeks after the real God. No one is seeking after the real Jesus. So God has to come along and revise our understanding of who he is. And he has to show us who he really is. Again, why, that's why the stone was rolled away, not to let Jesus out, but to let us in to see who he really is. I'm saying a lot of people think that they're seeking God. A lot of people think that they're seeking Jesus, but they're not seeking the God of the Bible. They want a God that owes them. They want a God who they feel like they can have some leverage with because of who they are and what they've done and how they've lived and, 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 and maybe even how they suffered. They want a God that kind of owes them a good life. 
they, a God they can have leverage with. They want a God, they also want a God that will explain things to them. They don't want to believe in a God who can't or won't explain why everybody's not going to heaven when they die. I mean, they don't want a God who won't explain why there's evil and suffering in the world. They want a God who will give them what they want, God will, a God who will make them feel good about themselves, a God who will bring an end to sick, sickness and suffering and give them great success, a God who will give them what they want but who will not require anything from them. In other words, we want a president, not a king. You see, a president is someone you put in place by your choice, your vote, and then the president is supposed to represent your interest. At least that's, that's the way it's supposed to work. A king is someone under whom we live by his choice. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us explanations, even though thankfully our God gives us lots of explanations in his love. And he assures us that there's a loving and wise heart behind the ones that he doesn't explain to us. You see, the real Jesus that Jesus as he really is, well, he's someone that sometimes will make you feel uncomfortable. Sometimes he tells you to do things that you don't want to do. Sometimes he tells you to do things that don't, that don't make sense to you. Sometimes he, 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 he doesn't come through for you like you think that he should. And, 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 and the sooner you understand that, that this is the way the real God is, that he's loving and he's wise and he's powerful, but if you don't, he doesn't give you something you think that you really need, it's because he knows you don't really need it. And the sooner you come to grips with that, the sooner you can say, Lord, I, I, help me believe in who you really are. Like I have been running from you all my life. I've been searching for a God that I can make in my own image, I, I, but I need to come to you as the real God. Open my heart, open my eyes, and show me who you really are. And the sooner you understand that, the sooner that you'll, you'll find him. Now, in some of our cases, he's been rolling a lot of stones away, and he's been creating all kinds of havoc in your life, not because he's unkind or harsh, but because he loves you, and he's trying to get you to open your eyes and your heart to him. And you think he doesn't care, you think he's hiding from you, but he's actually after you. And he's rolling stones away so you can get in and see who he really is. Because on our own, on our own, we're never really seeking the real God. We're after a God of our own making. So the real God has to come and reveal himself to us the way he really is. And that's what's going on in John chapter 20. God is working to bring these people who believed good things about Jesus to a God-connecting faith in the real Jesus. Now just hold on to that. Verse three. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb, both of them running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. All right, stop right there. <laughs> Couple observations. First, did you pick up on how proud John is that he beat Peter to the tomb? Now, I, we're gonna have to read this again because I gotta show it to you because this is just hilarious. Look at this. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. 
Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, I outran Peter, and I got to the tomb first. And stooping to look in, I saw uh, the linen cloth lying there, but I didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came. Remember, he was behind me, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by himself. And then I, <clears throat> who had reached the tomb first, then I went in. I mean, is that not the craziest thing you've ever heard in your life? Like this crazy detail that John's bragging about getting to the tomb first. I mean, he tells us three times. Now, now what's that all about? Well, I, I, it's a detail that would not be in this story if it was a made-up story. If it was a work of fiction or a myth made up by the leaders of the ancient church just to hold power over people. Now, that is the prevailing belief among skeptics and people who don't believe in the historicity of the Gospels, and they don't believe the resurrection of Jesus was a historical event. But if you were making up a myth, if you were making up a story, why would you make up that John ran, outran Peter and got to the tomb first? Why would you do that? It serves no purpose. And why would you say it three times? I mean, why would you make Peter look like some worn out old guy who was seriously out of breath when he finally got to the tomb, especially if your church leader's making up a story and you want to put, present Peter as the first pope. I mean, well, you wouldn't. You'd want to make all these people look like heroes and heroines. But that's not the way the resurrection story is told. In fact, that's not the way the gospel stories are told because when you read the gospels, these guys don't look like heroes and heroines. Uh, really, there's no attempt whatsoever to make anyone look good and set them up to be saints. Not Mary, not John, not Peter. None of the disciples believed that Jesus would rise from the dead. But John, the one that outran Peter to the tomb, the one who wrote this gospel, this resurrection story, he tells the story like this because this is what happened. This is what happened. He was there he knows what happened because he got the gold medal. Now, by the way, while I was doing research online, I, I ran across a blog about this passage. It was written by a young man who was a skeptic. But to his credit, he wasn't just going to buy into whatever some college professor taught him uh, about, you know, with all the non-supernatural explanations of, of what happened in the Bible and all this kind of stuff. So he comes to, to this passage, John 20, and he comes to it with an open mind. And he digs into the story for himself. He's scrutinizing all the details. And he says that he could not shake this strange factoid about John beating Peter in a foot race to the empty tomb. It just made no sense to him that a detail would be in a made-up story like this. And it stuck in his mind so much that he eventually dug deeper into the gospel, and he eventually trusted Christ. Everything John puts in his story is to bring us to faith. That's pretty wild, pretty wild. And there are a lot of these kind of seemingly insignificant details in all of the resurrection accounts, and they all make this one point, and that is this detail is included in John's account of the resurrection because it actually happened. It shows us that this was 
an actual eyewitness of account of what happened, and John puts this, story, puts this in the story because he's focusing on real events and real people and how they came to faith in the risen Christ so we would see what they saw and believe that Jesus is alive. All right, now we gotta go back through this passage one more time because there's another thing that's emphasized three times in the passage that you miss in English translations of the, of the scripture. And I wanna show you something that I think is, is another mind-blowing thing here. All right, and back to verse three. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb, both of them running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look, and stooping to look in, he saw, circle that, highlight that, the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw, circle that, highlight that, the linen cloths lying there, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, but it wasn't lined with the other linen cloths. It's folded up into place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, this, again, the second observation I wanna make from this passage is something that, you're, that you miss in English translations, but it is something that helps us see this process of how these guys are coming to faith, real faith in Jesus. Now, in verse four, we read that John arrives at the tomb, but he didn't go in, probably because he was the son of a priest. His father, Zebedee, was a priest, and John knew that if he came into contact with a dead person or a dead man's tomb, he would be ceremonially defiled. He didn't want to become unclean, so he doesn't go in. He just stoops down and looks in, and the text says he saw the linen cloths lying there. The word, the Greek word there for saw is the word blepo, and it simply means he saw the linen cloths lying there, just like I see you. I'm making an observation. I see you, 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 I see you. I, I'm not thinking about you, I just see you. I'm just making an observation. Okay, now, Look at verse six, when Peter arrives at the tomb, he doesn't stop uh, and look in, he runs in. So he, John's looking into the darkness and he's seeing like little faint shadows and stuff in there. Peter goes straight in, Peter, and John's still outside. Peter goes in and what he sees, it says he saw the linen cloths lying there. The word for saw in verse six is a different word. It's the Greek word theoreo which means to reason, to scrutinize, to theorize, theoreo, theorize. He's, he's pondering what Peter saw in those linen strips lying there doesn't make sense. And Peter is wondering what's going on and he's scratching his head, he's trying to figure it out, he's trying to make sense out of what he's seeing. He's thinking, he's seeing and thinking. Now by the way, faith is not thinking but faith is not less than thinking. Faith is not thinking, but it's not less than thinking because when God draws us to himself, when he reveals himself to us, he does so in a way that causes us to think and weigh out what he shows us and tells us about himself. So Peter's thinking about what he sees. Now John comes in and Peter and John are standing there and they're looking at the same thing. And we see in verse eight that John saw and believed. And the word in verse eight 
is not blepo and it's not theoreo, it's the Greek word ido, which means that John saw and perceived. He saw with perception. In other words, something clicked in John's mind and he had an aha moment and he believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Now the question is, what did they see that they couldn't quite understand? What did they see that actually nudged John over the line to faith in the risen Christ? Well, the answer is, it's pretty plain. I mean, it's right there in verses five, six, and seven. It's repeated uh, over and over so you understand what they're looking at. What, they're, what are they looking at? They're looking at the linen cloths lying there. Okay, so what's so perplexing about that? Well, first of all, the word lying in the Greek is a word that means to be lying in order or to be lying in an orderly way. And some people have said that that just means that the linen cloths were all nicely folded up in place. And now, that would be odd in itself, maybe the second miracle of the day because, well, if a man folded his clothes and laid them out nicely, you know, I mean, that's a miracle right there. Right, ladies? Now, wives, I, I, I have done this three times through these services, and there are a lot of women that just will not go on public record. So I'm, I'm begging you, if you have a husband who just leaves his clothes where they fall, jeans, T-shirts, underwear, whatever, he never folds them up, never puts them in the basket, he just takes them off, how many of you want to go on the record right now and say, that's my guy? Okay, all right. <laughs> All right, still, okay, all right, well, thank you, thank you. That's more than any other service, so I appreciate that. Uh, I've heard preachers say, the moral of this part of the story is, men, be like Jesus, fold your clothes. But that really can't account for what Peter and John saw in the linen claws lying there and why their brains are furiously turning all this over and over to try to make sense of it. And it doesn't, doesn't make sense that, that if that was what they saw, then how did that just push John over the line to where he says, I saw and believed? What was so startling? What was so shocking? Okay, so let me help you see what they saw. Back in the day, when people prepared a body for burial, the dead body would be wrapped in linen strips, strips of linen cloth and wrapped like a mummy. Would look something kind of like this, uh, or maybe like this. Now, when, when else have you heard about somebody being wrapped in linen cloths? Well, yeah, we're gonna get to him, but remember back when Jesus was born? And he was ripped, uh, uh, ripped, wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's linen cloths. He was wrapped in his burial clothes at his birth. Just a little side, side thing there. The point is, dead bodies weren't just wrapped in a white robe. They were wrapped completely around with linen strips. And along with that, the whole body was wrapped with pounds and pounds of aromatic spices. In Jesus' case, we learned from John 19 that about 100 pounds of aromatic spices. So as they're wrapping the body, they're, they're putting spices in between the wrappings. And uh, kind of like maybe even like a paste. So it's not like a plaster a, a, a plaster Paris cast, but it's, it's, it's gonna be hard to get out of. Okay, so... So the whole body was like that, the head was done separate, and the face was left open, so there was a face cloth. 
Okay, okay, okay. But so, but what are they seeing? What are they seeing exactly? Okay, hold on. First of all, they're realizing that if a man you thought was dead wasn't really dead, and he wakes up and he wants to get up, he would have to tear off all those linen strips. So remember, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, Lazarus comes, he comes walking out or moving out like this, and, and what does Jesus say? He says, unbind him. Get those grave clothes off the guy, because he could not have gotten out of them himself. So there's no way in this mummified state to get out unless you had incredible strength uh, to rip them off, or someone else unwrapped you. Now, so, but again, like, like, like if someone stole the body, why would you unwrap the body and carry out a naked, oozing, bloody corpse? I mean, it doesn't make any sense, and it didn't make sense to them. But what really befuddled them was that the linen cloths were still wrapped because there'd be no way for them to be lying nicely folded up if somebody ripped them off. So they're trying to make sense of all this. And not only that, the clincher is that the folded head cloth was right where the head should be. It wasn't like just strewn all over. It was like, here's the body and here's the head. Now, <clears throat> You ready to have your mind blown? I have been alive 66 years, been a preacher for over 35 years, and I have never heard what I'm about to tell you until I was studying out this week. And, I'm, and this is not just one or two people. I was like, this is so widely known, like how could I have never heard this? So I'm gonna tell it to you. The word translated folded is a Greek word that means rolled up. The face cloth was still rolled up where the head should have been, separate from the rest of the linens. And here's what New Testament scholar Michael Green says about the grave clothes. He says the word lying does not merely refer to the fact that they were lying there on the floor of the sepulcher or on the stone slab where the body was laid. No, that word actually means they were precisely, they were lying precisely as the body had lain in them. Lying precisely as the body had lain in them. In other words, the grave clothes were in exactly the same position and shape as the body occupied, but the body was gone. Michael Green says they saw the grave clothes still wound around but empty, hollow as if the body had passed right through, looking like a chrysalis after the butterfly had left and the butterfly had left. In other words, they didn't see this or even this. They saw this or this. <laughs> There's almost no other possible reason why these linen cloths would be mentioned three times. There's no other possible reason why Peter and John were so awestruck by what they saw. And there's no other possible reason that John would come to faith in Christ by just looking at a bunch of clothes with the headcloth all nightly folded up over here. Doesn't make any sense. And here's the, here's the cool thing about this. What they saw, what I just described, demolishes all the non-supernatural explanations of the empty tomb. 
For example, one non-supernatural explanation of the tomb is that it's called the swoon theory, and that is that Jesus, he was badly beaten. He was, you know, it was, he was really bad off, but, but, uh, they, but he didn't die. They thought he was dead. They, they, they put him in, laid him on the stone slab, wrapped him up, put the spices and everything in him, but he wasn't really dead. And, and, but in the coolness of the tomb, Jesus went, <gasps> and I mean, he was like a new man, and he just <laughs> ripped off the grave clothes, and out he goes. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, Jesus was beaten, scourged, flogged. Within an inch of his life, he was crucified. Nails pierced his hands and feet. The amount of blood loss he suffered I, is unimaginable. I don't know how he even made it to the cross. He was crucified. Then a spear was thrust in his side, and we're supposed to believe that somehow in the coolness of the tomb, that he revives and has the strength to tear off those grave clothes and walk out? I mean, that doesn't make any sense, and it especially doesn't make any sense if this is what they saw. Now, uh, uh, it doesn't make any sense. The other non-supernatural explanations have to do with the fact that Jesus' enemy stole his body, or maybe his friends stole it. But again, why would you unwrap the linen cloths and cart off a naked cadaver? Makes no sense, and it absolutely couldn't happen if the grave clothes were lying there in the same shape as the body, as if the body were still in them, but the body was gone. You follow me here? Jesus' physical body was transfigured into a physical glorified body and he passed right through those mummified grave wrappings, leaving them rolled up intact. And that is what Peter and John saw in the tomb and that's what caused John to write out his own personal testimony where he said, at this point I saw and I believed. Now, verse nine says they didn't understand how all of this, all the scriptures uh, they didn't understand all the, all the scriptures behind the fact that Jesus had to die and rise again. But it does mean that John believed the evidence of the empty tomb and believed that Jesus had risen from the dead before he met Jesus face to face. And he's gonna have lots of experiences with Jesus in person. But he believed based on the evidence of the tomb before he ever saw Jesus, and I think the most important moment in this entire story in these first 10 verses are the three words he saw and believed. I think that John wants us to think about his personal I saw and believed aha moment so that we can see what he saw and put our faith in Christ as well. Now for John, when he realized that, it meant that everything in his life changed because he knew that if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything that Jesus taught was true. Everything Jesus said about himself, everything he said about God, everything he said about us, our need for forgiveness, our need for God to give us new life, he knew that it was all true. It had to be 100% absolutely true. And, and, and he saw, again, he saw and believed before he saw Jesus alive from the dead. He believed based on the evidence of the tomb. And he began a lifelong journey with the risen Christ that turned him from being a rambunctious son of thunder, as Jesus sometimes referred to him, into a man of wisdom and love and grace. And in his later years, when he was writing this book, he was known as the apostle of love. And John spent the rest of his life telling people 
that Almighty God had come in the person of Jesus and that he died on the cross so our sins could be forgiven and he rose from the dead to give us eternal life just as the scriptures tell us. Now, listen, if you're a Christian, that means the foundation of your faith is this event, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The foundation of your faith is not on feelings. It's not feelings. It's not some song that really um, made you have warm, fuzzy feelings. It's not like, well, I felt it when I was 12, but I don't, I don't feel it so much anymore. Or I, I felt it when I was young and when I went to church, but I didn't feel it at my mom's funeral. But then I felt it kind of again, kind of came back. Around. No, 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 no. Your faith is not. Faith must not be based on how you feel. No, the foundation of your faith is an event in history, a verifiable event in history. In fact, the most supported event in ancient history because of all the eyewitness accounts. Because, you see, in, the, in, in those days when histories were written, and this is true of everything, we have the history of the Roman Empire, like dating back to these centuries, what would happen is an emperor would hire a historian to record history to make him look good. And these stories aren't written to make anybody look good. If the church was going to make up stories to hold power over people, you wouldn't tell the stories like this. But our faith rests on the testimony of men and women who saw it and believed it and experienced it. And they spent their lives telling people that Jesus came from God, that he was crucified on a Roman cross. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. And by the power of God, he lives and reigns today. That's what Easter is about. That's why we celebrate Easter. It's the big event. It's the biggest event in history. And that's why those of us that live in the 21st century, with all we know about medicine and science, we can look at a story like this and say, yeah, I mean, I'm, I understand why it's so hard to believe. But these were eyewitnesses, and they saw them, and the stories were passed down to us. And so we believe, we see and believe what they saw and believed. And so we can declare with joy, he's risen, he's risen indeed. I believe that he rose, I believe that he's alive, and Jesus is my Lord. Today, you have seen the evidence as well. You have seen the evidence in John's eyewitness testimony. You have seen in John's story what he saw that first Easter morning in the empty tomb. So here's my question for you. Has there ever been a time or a moment in your life where you made that de declaration to God yourself? I believe in Jesus. W when you personally saw and believed in the real Jesus yourself. Now maybe you've come to believe it or come to believe most of it, maybe in the past few weeks or months or over the last year or Maybe, for some of you, maybe, while I was preaching, there was something kind of like, like an aha, like this, something went on off inside of your, of your head, and you were like, oh, I get it. I, I, I see it. it. It's true. I believe it. And, and that wasn't because my sermon was so good. It wasn't, wasn't my words. It was just the story. It's, it, was, it was just the evidence in the story, and you saw and you believed in Jesus for the first time. That's the way God works. He works kind of in this mysterious, almost mystical way. Sometimes when he shows himself to us, 
He just opens our, the eyes of our heart, and, and we can't really explain it, but it's like, it's like, I never saw it before, but I see it now. My question is, has there ever been a time in your life when you have officially crossed the line of faith to say, God, I'm placing all my faith, all my hope, all my trust in Christ's death on the cross for the payment of my sins. God, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he came back to life to seal the fact that what he said about you is true, what he said about me was true. Yes, God, right now, the best way I know how, I'm declaring that I am trusting Jesus as my Savior. I'm asking, has there ever been a moment in your life like that? I had that saw, I saw and believe moment when I was 10 years old. And of course at 10 years old, I didn't understand how all the scriptures pointed towards a Jesus who had to die for, die for me and, and had to rise from the grave. But I believed the basic facts that, that I was a sinner, that I needed Christ in my life, that he died on the cross for my sin he was wrote, and he rose from the dead. And, 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 and by, by placing my faith in him and believing in him, my sins would be forgiven, I'd go to heaven when I died. And, and that was a, that, that, there was a point in time that, that I did that. And I believe it's important for you to know the moment and to mark the moment where you see and believe, where you, you, can, you can always look back and say, well, that was when I saw and believed for the first time. This was when my faith became real to me. This is, was the beginning of my, my journey, my spiritual journey with Christ. And if, if there's never been a time in your life like that, then this could be that moment for you. So I'd like to lead you in a prayer to verbalize your faith in Christ. A prayer where you can make that declaration. Today I'm trusting Jesus to be my Savior and Lord. Now, you don't have to use my words. It's not the exact words that are important, it's, but it's the attitude of your heart that says, God, today I'm putting all my faith in Jesus. And you can pray out loud, you can pray under your breath, you can pray quietly, but we, we don't want you to go through this Easter season without having an opportunity to tell God that you do believe in Christ, that you do believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for the sins of the world, but he died for your sins, and that today you're accepting the gift of God's forgiveness through his death on the cross. So would, would you, everybody, would you just bow with me in prayer? And if today is your day and you wanna mark this moment, would you pray this prayer after me? Would you say, Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is your son. I believe he's the savior of the world. Right now, I'm trusting him to be my savior. God, I believe that when Jesus died, he died to take away my sin. And I believe he was buried, and I believe he was raised on the third day. I believe he's alive today. God, please receive me into your family, not based on my efforts, 
not even based on this prayer, but based on my faith in what Jesus did on my behalf. God, thank you for forgiving me of all my sin, my past sin, my present sin, my future sin. Today, I declare that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. Now keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I'm gonna ask, if you prayed that prayer just now, I'm gonna ask you to do something. If that was the first time you ever prayed a prayer like that with everybody's head bowed and every eye closed, if you prayed that prayer just now, I want you to look up at me and raise your hand. And this is just between me and you and God. But I want you to look up at me, raise your hand, letting me know I crossed the line today. I see and believe. If you prayed to receive Christ today, just raise your hand, and when our eyes meet and I acknowledge you, you can put your hand back down. Yes, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Great. I'm not gonna prolong the time, but I wanna give you an opportunity to say, yep, today. I don't know what it was. I've heard some of this before, but today, I saw with perception, I saw it and it clicked. Yes, welcome to the family. Welcome to the family. Anyone else? Yes, way back in the back, I do see that hand. Yep, welcome to the family. Father, thank you for drawing all these to yourself today. Thank you that <laughs> this adds even more joy and excitement to this great Easter, this amazing day of, of celebration, and we thank you for how you've worked in our hearts today. Amen. Now, I want everybody to look up, and I want you to take your phone and open your camera app, and I want you to point your camera app app at the QR code that's on the back of the chairs in front of you, or you can point it to the QR code on the screen. You don't take a picture, you just tap the gray box that comes up when your camera recognizes the code, and that code should take you to a landing page that looks like this it's on our website. And there's five boxes on this landing page, five click boxes, and if you are curious about what we've talked about today, but you're still not sure, you might wanna just click that first box that says First Step Salvation. That'll take you to some additional resources that will help you continue to think about what real faith in Christ looks like. There's a little PDF booklet that I wrote. It's called The Runaway Bride, and I wrote this specifically to help people kind of put together the whole story of the Bible and how it all focuses down to Jesus' death and his resurrection and uh, what it means for us to trust and follow him. And so um, there's the PDF online. If you wanna get a hard copy of this, uh, they're out in the commons area, they're free. Next Step Table, Welcome Center, they're there. Pick them up, pick more up, and give them to friends if you want to. But um, if you 
prayed to receive Christ today, then you'll want to click the second box, which says next step, baptism. And um, in the New Testament, when someone received Christ uh, as their Savior, the first thing they did was to be baptized as a way of letting other people know that they had become a follower of Jesus. And so check out that, click that box, and you'll find uh, there an explanation of what baptism is, what it's not, but why, and why it's important for the next step in your spiritual journey. The third box is explain the gospel to your kids. And there was uh, um, several kids this morning that raised their hands. And so kids, if you raised your hand, make sure and tell your mom that you, you prayed with Pastor Charlie today and wanted Jesus to come into your life and come into your heart. And there's some resources, parents, there that can help you um, know how to talk to your child about the decision they have made. And number four, if this is your first time here, we'd love to have a record that you have uh, been with us today. And so the fourth uh, click box is uh, the Connect card. And just uh, let us know that you are here. And if you have questions about Fellowship Greenville, then you can uh, say, I just want more information in the comment box there, and uh, we'll get back in touch with you. Good day, good day. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of celebration and worship. Thank you for all those who took the first step of faith today. Thank you for this opportunity to look again at the amazing, amazing story of Jesus' resurrection. And thank you for protecting these stories through the ages. And thank you that they are every bit as relevant and life-changing today as they were when John first wrote them down. And thank you for the passion that's been rekindled in many of our hearts as we celebrate the event that changed history, but more than that, the event that changes our lives as well in we thank you for these things in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen.